0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com, TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com, and Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com.
1: It's another busy week in the airline business, and you've come to the right place to get caught up. I'm Ben Baldanza, and welcome to Airlines Confidential.
2: And I'm Chris Chimes. We're glad you're here. We're going to do a quick roundup of some news headlines, and then we're going to get to our special guest, former FAA Administrator Michael Huerta. So Ben, buckle up. Let's rock and roll and get this going. Here in the US, we had another week of Q4 and year-end results for some major airlines. United and American reported expected losses and provided some readjusted thoughts about 2022 and Omicron. Southwest will report on Thursday, January 27th, the day after this podcast goes live. Frontier goes in February, same as Ryanair and some other US carriers. So we'll wait for them. But in the meantime, let's dissect the United and American numbers for a bit.
1: Well, both interesting announcements by both of them. I was a little surprised at the extent of the American loss, almost a billion dollars. It started with a nine at least. (laughs) And um, after Delta had reported their loss in the 400 million range, I was sort of expecting American similar size, but also American more domestic, which hasn't fallen, or I should say has come back more than the international side. Delta is more international than American. So I was surprised that Americans' number was so large. I take that to be the much higher debt service they have on a much newer fleet and uh, things like that. But I think it suggests that incoming CEO Robert Isom has a lot of work to do to get Americans' financials at least in line with his two largest competitors. Because if Delta's going to lose, less than half of what American lost during bad times. That doesn't suggest Americans' competitiveness is as strong as maybe they need it to be. Now, in United's case, they also had um, an earnings number that was a little bit more in line, I think, with what Deltas looked like in terms of if you look at the size of their airline which suggests to me that United, which has been the most conservative on capacity among the three big carriers, that that strategy has kind of worked for them, that they've been flying things that work more than just keeping a lot of capacity in the air. So the bottom line is it seems to me that United and Delta are managing things a little bit more conservatively than American. American is still keeping a lot of capacity out there. And that suggests to me that a lot of that capacity maybe isn't returning the way they might hope it will be. Now, when Vasu Raja was on the show, and we really appreciate him coming on and talking about American strategy, he was very bullish about wanting to lead the recovery. And as people came back, he wanted to make sure they had seats And that's been their strategy. And maybe going into the summer, that's going to benefit them versus the other two big guys. But when you're looking at just the last quarter and their loss almost double on similarly sized kind of companies, it suggests to me Americans got some catching up to do. What I liked about the two releases of United American following Deltas is all three of the carriers talked pretty bullishly about Omicron peaking, getting beyond Omicron, and looking beyond Omicron, they felt bookings would be very strong, and we'd have a very strong summer. And they all sort of Parroted that same kind of language, which is encouraging. Because if they all believe that, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. But they're all looking at their own booking data. They're all listening to their distributors. They're talking to customers. So when all three of the big airlines say they're expecting a busy summer, I'm encouraged that we may have a busy summer.
2: So a few things stood out to me. One, despite the big American number, I think it was better than what the street expected. I mean, both United and the American losses were less than what the street was expecting. To your point, United's somewhat conservative approach bore out in some other things, like they readjusted their growth outlook for 2022. They originally said they were going to have more capacity in the air by the end of 2022 than they did in 2019. They're adjusting that. American made a point of saying they ended the year with their strongest liquidity position ever. So I think, again, they were trying to address the larger losses and and underscore their financial stability. Uh, The other thing that United was very bullish about getting back into the Asia market pretty strongly, along with kind of traffic coming back, but they pointed out a lot of optimism about Asia traffic And then I saw that American had said they had hired 16,000 employees in 2021 and then projected to hire another 18,000 in 2022. By my my calculation, their workforce in 2020 was like 113,000 or something. And so they're going to have about a quarter of their workforce relatively new. So they're absorbing a lot of onboarding and new talent. And obviously that's going to raise costs and require more investment in people and training to get the
1: operation back coming along. That's a great point you're making, Chris. You know, in some ways it lowers costs in that if if you think about why they need all those people, it's because they reduced a lot of flying because of the pandemic. Many senior people took early outs or retired or just left the industry. So now they're rehiring to refill capacity once they believe the demand is back. So they, effectively over a couple of year period might be replacing more expensive senior people with lower paid new people. So in that sense, that could be a positive thing on their costs. But you're right. They're going to have to spend a lot of time onboarding and training. And that may offset at least some, if not all of that. Plus, you have to think of the cultural implications to the extent You've tried to build cultural issues within the company and communications and such, and now a quarter of the people are brand new. It brings a lot of challenges, doesn't it?
2: Sure does. So it's part of, I think, what a lot of companies are going through. But to uh, keep uh, airplanes flying, it's a much more complicated proposition. And then, Ben, breaking over the weekend and perhaps confirm by the time we go live this week... Lufthansa seems to have won the bidding war for an equity stake in ITA, the successor to Italia. They are reportedly going to take a 40% equity stake, supposedly beating out BA and Delta, although Delta has denied making a bid. So was this a strategic offensive move by Lufthansa or a defensive move to keep others out of their backyard?
1: I think it's both, Chris. Now, Lufthansa has a history of doing this, right? They bought Swiss, they've bought Austrian, they bought other airlines in the space in which they operate. And even though they've kept those brands, they effectively manage their fleets, their capacity, their pricing, things like that, right? So there, it's all part of the Lufthansa group, not so different than what IAG does with their airlines, of course. And, Alitalia, which struggled for so many years, many people attribute at least some of Alitalia's challenges. Yes, there was a lot of what people perceive was mismanagement within that airline, right? But from a macro standpoint, Lufthansa's very strong and, and focused hub in Munich has been a real challenge for Italy. If you think of that geography, Munich sort of just north right of yeah. of northern Italy, it certainly affects the Milan market to some extent and United has pulled traffic that earlier may have connected over Italy into Germany with that especially the Munich hub. And so Lufthansa doing this I think is clearly offensive They believe that they own not only Germany, but the markets around Germany and Italy is one of those, and they don't want to lose that. But it clearly is also defensive because they wouldn't want BA getting stronger in that same space as well. It might be like, you know, IAG outbidding Lufthansa on a UK-based airline if it were to come in play, right, to, to where you could see it as both offensive and defensive, also, sort of breaking news on this, Chris. I saw a report that said that ITA may actually use the name Alitalia because they've bought the rights to that name.
2: Oh, I didn't see that. So, well, we'll have to see what else comes out of that uh, news this week. Um, I, you know, I agree with you that there's there's a, a yin and a yang to this uh, deal if, in fact, happens as uh, Lufthansa really tries to solidify. Not just Germany, they've got Austria, Switzerland. They've had a strong position in Italy. This just solidifies that. So that broader central European region they won't own, but they'll they'll clearly have um, a strong position. You know, the other thing you didn't mention that we've talked about previously too is I mean, the other issue with Italy in general is, the Ryanair EasyJet and Whiz Air presence that has just kind of picked apart a lot of the leisure travel go to ultra-low-cost carriers. So this doesn't solve for that, but it certainly uh, puts them in a much better position to continue to pull the business travel feed uh, over their German hubs.
1: Yeah, you're right. That's absolutely right. And as Lufthansa expands its group empire in a sense – with this investment, they, you know, sort of have a seat at the table of how the competitive environment and how the regulatory environment and all things like that get shaped in and around all of them, which is why I think they're interested in this investment. The same reason IAG owns the carriers or has invested in the carriers they have, and not different than what Delta has tried to do with carriers around the world. Well, more news in a moment, which is brought to you with the support of TA Connections. TA Connections procures over 30 million rooms annually on behalf of their clients and makes travel management easier and less expensive with AI-powered booking applications and negotiated rate programs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management.
2: And Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and APUs. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And then, Ben, before we get to Michael, um, I got to ask about the Cutter Airbus dispute. Airbus just canceled a delivery deal for 321 Neos, the only narrow bodies Cutter had on order. Looks like this was collateral damage from Cutter making complaints about the Airbus 350 paint reliability. Can you unpack this better than I just described?
1: Well, I think you got the top line right, Chris. This is an amazing thing, actually, and surprising. It is not typical for a manufacturer like a Boeing and Airbus to outright cancel a big order for airplanes from any airline, let alone sort of a a world airline like Cutter here. But I think there's a lot that went into this. It seems to me that the tension between these two had been building for a while. It started on a paint reliability thing, and then Airbus claims that Cutter didn't take delivery of some planes that they were supposed to take delivery of, and that created a default, and that default gave them the legal right to cancel anything they had going on with Cutter. Maybe Airbus saw this as an opportunity to do two things. One, really try to take a strong position with Cutter, so that in future dealings, maybe they won't take Airbus as much for granted, at least the way Airbus perceives it. I'm sure Cutter doesn't perceive it that way at all. But also... The 321 NEO is one of the most popular planes in demand right now. And Airbus may have seen the opportunity as we can take these airplanes from Cutter, and at the price we charge Cutter for those, we can go and re-market these planes and make more money for every one of these planes, given the high demand for this plane. So Airbus may have seen this as a win-win. I can slap Cutter a bit. Try to discipline them, which might help us in future negotiations. But at the same time, get back 30 airplanes that I can remarket really quickly. Very, very bold move by Airbus. And it suggests that the relationship with Qatar has gotten really sour because they wouldn't do something like that and they wouldn't try to sort of use such a heavy hand like that unless they really felt something was going off the rails.
2: I was reminded of an old Steve Martin joke uh, when I saw him in concert, oh God, 30 or 40 years ago. But he was observing, you know, we have a wedding ceremony, but maybe we should have a divorce ceremony. So here's my proposal for a divorce ceremony. The two people stand in front of each other and say, I break with thee, I break with thee, I break with thee. And then you throw dog poop on the other person's shoes. So I think Airbus was throwing a little bit of dog poop on Cutter's shoes uh, this past week. Um, I agree with you, a bold move. And maybe they just said enough. And um, we'll have to see where this goes. But um, like you said, clearly other people want those Airbus uh, Neos. And Airbus would rather put them someplace else.
1: And one thing I didn't mention, that's a great joke by Steve Martin, by the way. Um, and another thing that I didn't mention is Airbus also may have wanted to use Cutter to send a message to other airlines with which maybe they're having difficult conversations. They, Even though this was all about Airbus and Cutter, Airbus might have said, we kind of like the fact that the world will see this and maybe that'll change the dynamics of our current negotiations with airlines A, B, and C that we're having over here. Well, coming up, our conversation with former FAA Administrator Michael Huerta.
0: Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net. The hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. TheArchive.net is now boarding.
1: Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. It's a real pleasure to welcome to the show this week's guest, the Honorable Michael Huerta, the former administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration. Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Well, Michael, as with all of our guests, we'd like you to talk about your background in aviation and what you've been up to since you left the FAA.
3: Well, you know, I've always been very interested and enthusiastic about aviation, going all the way back to when I was a kid. So when I had the opportunity to join the FAA, it was, uh, in many respects, a dream job, as you know, originally I joined the agency in 2010 as deputy administrator, and the idea was the administration was looking for me to play an active role as deputy in the deployment of the next gen air traffic control system. I had before that served as the group president of a technology services company in the transportation sector. And they were thinking, hey, you would be perfect for dealing with a technological deployment um, in, in a government setting. My response was, well, um, look, if I'm not going to sit here and tell you that a mission-critical toll collection system on the New Jersey Turnpike is in the same league as what you're talking about here, but you know, I'm certainly willing to play a role and be a part of it. And uh, they brought me on board. Um, I never really intended to be administrator, but uh, a bunch of things happened. And in, uh, at the end of 2011, became acting administrator and then was finally confirmed in 2013. And it's truly been one of the most rewarding experiences I've had in my entire career. Since then, I have uh, moved over into the consulting realm. I do aviation and aerospace consulting for a variety of clients, particularly in the new entrance area, what we call the new entrance, uh, drones, um, electric, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And I also serve on a couple of public boards, one, Delta Airlines, and the other, a transportation technology firm called Vera Mobility.
2: So, Michael, before you became the administrator, you been around transportation policy for much of your career, including a stint in the Clinton administration at DOT. What were some of the important uh, aviation decisions and topics you were involved in back then? Well, when I
3: was at uh, DOT, I was focused much more on the surface transportation side, although I had some level of tangential involvement at uh the effort that was led by then Vice President Gore to look at the air traffic system and to consider privatizing it in some way. We all know that that and subsequent efforts to do that uh, did not, uh, you know, were not successful. And I think that, you know, for a variety of reasons, we as a country, you know, Uh, struggle with um, this whole relationship of the government and the private sector in critical transportation infrastructure. One project that I was very heavily involved in, not related to aviation, was a program called the Alameda Corridor Project, uh, which was a rail corridor that connected the Port of Los Angeles with um, the rest of the country, essentially. What was significant about it is it was a public-private partnership. And it was a project where the federal government did a a very unusual structure, rather than just a lot of federal grants to pay for the project. Since it was a project that could generate revenue, it became a loan program that funded a big part of the development of that project. And that became the predecessor for um, an ongoing Program called uh, TIFIA, which was a lending program for a variety of different transportation infrastructure programs. So it was it was an interesting time to be in government. It was a great team, and while I was keeping an eye on aviation, I was not as heavily involved as I was when I went over to the FAA. But I was there for a very critical period. And that was, uh, you'll remember in 1996, when we had um, some very significant crashes, TW800 and ValueJet. And that led to the development of the culture that has characterized aviation since then, this collaborative culture of the government and industry working together and uh, really set in motion what had been one of the what has been one of the safest periods in aviation in history.
1: Well, Michael, that's a perfect lead in then to becoming the FAA administrator when you had been involved in the surface transportation issues. When you stepped into that role which you described as a dream job at that time, I guess it could have been a dream or nightmare based on what you had to face. What were you facing when you stepped into the role to run the FAA?
3: Well, uh, after I was confirmed by the Senate in early 2013, that first couple of weeks actually was a bit of a nightmare. One of the hardest decisions that I had to make was the decision to ground the Boeing 787. You'll recall that uh, there had been some battery issues that had emerged uh, where fires would start on board the aircraft not in flight initially Uh, it was when they would power up the auxiliary power unit but an in-flight incident uh, developed in that very early period of my tenure as as administrator and we had to make the tough decision to uh, put the airplane on the ground and I think it was the right decision at the time it was called a bit of an overreaction but what it did was it put in motion a really intense process of the FAA working with the company to come up with a fix and mitigations and we were able to return the aircraft to flight after several months but it was it was pretty intense and I remember a lot of meetings where when we made the decision that uh, we needed to ground the airplane. I remember one of our uh, senior executives saying to me,
2: that's a really big decision, And, and it was, but I think it was the right decision. Michael, I agree with you that collaboration between government and industry has really led to this remarkable period of aviation safety, but after you had left the FAA, the agency came under some scrutiny regarding the regulatory oversight of the 737 MAX, What are some of the lessons from this? And talk about some of the challenges in changing the culture of a large government agency like the FAA.
3: You know, it has been a challenging few years for the FAA. Going back to this collaborative culture I was talking about before, one of the things that characterizes that is that there has to be a lot of trust across the entire industry the companies, the agency, and ultimately the traveling public. And I think as a result of the MAX, that trust has been shaken. And it's something that is extremely important to make sure that uh, we focus on strengthening and uh, ensuring that it is always there. Because without that trust, you can't have the same level of transparency and sharing of information which is really critical to ensure aviation safety i was struck by in the early days following the 2 max crashes that or even or after the first crash and then certainly after the second both of which were just horrible horrible situations that people called into question what was fundamentally the collaborative approach to certification of aircraft. And I think that part of that is a natural tendency on the part of people to want to find a villain. But in aviation, we recognize that aviation is fundamentally about managing risk. If we wanted to eliminate risk, we simply wouldn't fly. But managing it is a difficult concept for the public to understand. But the best way to manage risk is for everyone to have access to the same information. And that's what's behind the collaborative approach to all aspects of ensuring aviation safety. I think there were some in Congress and many in the public at large that were calling for a bright line to be drawn between the regulator, the FAA, and the companies that uh, they regulate. And my concern about that is it creates an adversarial relationship where you don't have that same level of transparency and sharing. So, uh, fortunately, that is not what came out of the congressional hearings and investigations that took place following the crash. But what also has come to light was that maybe the relationship wasn't as trusting as it, as it needed to be. And what do I mean by that? Well, what's come out is that there were was information that was known by the company that perhaps hadn't been provided to the regulator on a timely basis. There's also, I think, a valid question that is asked, which is how do you determine what things that the agency needs to reserve for itself in terms of regulatory oversight versus those things that it could delegate to the company? And I think that what, what came out of the MAX Incidents is an understanding that you need to have clarity as to what the roles are. You know, Ultimately, as a regulator, that has to make the determination of whether the aircraft is safe to fly. But what it depends on is openness and transparency with the company in terms of what information they have and ensure that it's shared broadly to ensure that everyone is making the best decisions they can make based on the data they have. And I think that this is something that all of us in aviation have to continually focus on. We, aviation has this concept that we all understand, continuous operational safety. And it's based on an understanding that at any given point in time, we're gonna make the best decision we can based on the data that we have, but it's also based on um, an understanding that we're gonna learn new things. And that can cause us to perhaps revise that decision or make a different decision down the road. That doesn't mean that the first decision was a bad decision, but it means that we are a learning culture And based on those learnings, we're gonna continue to evolve our decision-making, always with an eye toward improving safety. That's the ideal, but that is incredibly hard work to maintain it. And what it means is we all have to be constantly thinking about what else don't I know that I need to be thinking about and what information do I need to continue to gather in order to ensure that the system continues to operate safely.
1: That's incredibly insightful, Michael. And thank you for sharing that view of how maybe a rash response to these terrible crashes could have made things less safe, actually. Mm -hmm. And it's good that cooler heads prevailed and figure out how to make the system smarter, not fundamentally change that trust, but improve that trust. That's right. Well, let's move this a bit toward air traffic control. And for a long time since I've been in the industry, we've been hearing this term next gen and wondering how far next that gen is. So do you believe that our country's air traffic control is capable of making a big technology upgrade? Or will we have to depend on just small upgrades on and on? Or is there a big change coming, but we're just not ready yet?
3: I think it's a little bit of all of the above, but let's take the last point that you made. We're just not there yet. There have been a lot of improvements and changes that have been made to the system over the last uh, 10, 15 years. And let's start with the basic platform under which we do air traffic control. The technology systems that the controllers use, both in what's called the en route environment, which is high altitude, long haul portions of flights, and the terminal environment, what we used to think of as uh, approach control, but that area that uh, controls traffic as it makes its way ultimately at one end or the other of the flight into the airport. New technology systems have been deployed over the last 10 years and uh, virtually all of our air traffic facilities here in the United States are now equipped with these new platforms. The second thing that has happened, which is also foundational to NextGen, is the deployment and reliance on a GPS-based tracking system called Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast. And this became mandatory for controlled air traffic at the beginning of 2020. The significance of ADSB versus radar is that what a, what a controller or someone who's observing air traffic sees on their screen, based on radar, is a series of blips, a series of points. And what it is, um, what you're actually seeing, is the position of an aircraft based on when it is seen by radar. And then the next blip or point is when the radar sees it again. And that can be several seconds. And so what that translates to from an air traffic control standpoint is you have to consider not only where that aircraft is, based on the first point, and where you expect it to be based on its trajectory the next point. But you have to consider every other place it could go in between that. Let's say it takes a sharp left or a sharp right turn. And those considerations are built into buffer zones, which air traffic controllers call separation standards, how far apart you have to keep aircraft. Now, when you're in an ADS-B, GPS-based world, you're seeing the aircraft move constantly in real time and so in a sense you're moving from an image that looks a lot like an impressionist painting where you can make everything out but it's a little bit blurry you're moving to hd tv you have a constant view of what's happening across the system what that translates to is the ability to close up separation standards to make them tighter uh, make them more efficient, and move more aircraft in a relatively smaller space. So the enabling technology has largely been deployed. Where it gets, I think, interesting and complicated is when you build the applications on top of that. When I was at the agency, we began a process that we called Metroplex, which was redesigned the airspace in metropolitan areas in order to ensure that uh, we're taking full advantage of what we have from a technological standpoint. What we were trying to do was things like separate arrivals and departures in corridors, which gives us a greater level of safety, to provide multiple paths into a metropolitan area that would perhaps deconflict some choke points um, that we have in many different parts of the country and a whole variety of um, other initiatives as well. What we discovered was that we really underestimated the impact and the concern that that was going to generate from the public at large. Now, aircraft are a lot quieter today than they have been at any time in recent history, but that doesn't mean that people aren't sensitive to aircraft noise. And what we encountered in many different metropolitan areas was a great deal of public concern um, and backlash of redefined air routes over those metropolitan areas. And part of it, I think, was it, it didn't seem to have a basis in actual factual information. That we had public members of the public complaining about aircraft that were that were transiting the region at eleven thousand feet, very difficult to hear, but um, it led to this phenomenon that we were puzzled by. You know that there seemed to be a public reaction. If I can see it, therefore I can hear it, and uh, so we really had to spend a lot of time explaining and helping the public. Understand what we were going to do from an airspace standpoint, why we were doing it, uh, to increase safety and efficiency, and what they could expect. But that makes it extremely difficult to uh, deploy these on a large scale. But you, you know, going back to the beginning of your question, you asked, uh, "Will we ever get there?" The answer. To, I believe is we have to get there because uh, as we see more use of our airspace, not only for conventional aviation, but also for what we call new users or new entrants into the system, whether that's drone traffic, whether that is short haul, uh, electric vertical takeoff landing aircraft, our existing air traffic system is not equipped to handle them as it's currently configured and operated. And we have to work together to find a way to accommodate these new users into the
2: system. So Michael, I'm gonna ask a follow-up to the next-gen technology question, and maybe I'm mixing apples and oranges or props and Jet Aircraft, but what is the recent rodeo with 5G, what does that tell us about the agency and the government's ability to manage through technology Transitions and you know, should this have been resolved a long time ago with regard to implementing 5G around airports? But talk to us about what we've all been watching the last couple of weeks.
3: <laughs> this 5G uh, kerfuffle that we've had over the past few weeks is a problem that didn't need to emerge in the way that it emerged. And I think that uh, what it really speaks to is a lack of coordination and communication taking place primarily at the governmental level, which is unfortunate. It's a problem that has a solution, uh, but it's a problem that requires um, a lot of really detailed technical analysis in order to reach that solution. And unfortunately, that was not taking place on a timely basis over the last couple of years. You know, essentially, what it stems from, as a country, we have an objective of enhancing access to broadband services. And that's an incredibly important and significant policy objective. At the same time, as a country, we want to ensure a safe aviation system. And we want to, you know, when, 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 People get on aircraft, they're thinking about a lot of things. Uh, They're thinking about uh, whether they're going to get to their destination on time, who they're going to see once they get there. But for the most part, we're not thinking about whether it is safe to do so because we have come so far in aviation and we've come to expect that in the system. Well, how they came into conflict was uh, through the use of Spectrum. Spectrum is a limited resource and uh, a lot of it is used for aviation. And uh, the Federal Communications Commission, which is responsible for allocating spectrum here in the United States, had identified a number of years ago that it wanted to make a particular portion of the spectrum, the so-called C-band, available for these uh, 5G deployments here in the US. Starting all the way back then, uh, the aviation industry uh, made its concerns known about the potential for interference with the deployment of 5G with critical onboard navigation systems. And those concerns or are, are transmitted through the FAA to another government agency uh, within the Department of Commerce, the NTIA, National uh, Telecommunications and Infrastructure Administration. And they are responsible for arbitrating these discussions at the governmental level. Well, what happened was a bit of a regulatory standoff between technical experts, where when the Spectrum auction was held at the end of 2020, the Spectrum that was made available for 5G was essentially identified as being free of interference. And so the telecommunication companies bid, in good faith, billions and billions of dollars to have access to that spectrum. And uh, meanwhile, the concerns expressed by the aviation industry, which had been in aviation circles well known, were not acknowledged in that spectrum auction. But that didn't mean the issue went away. You know, the industry continued to have concerns, continued to conduct its own analysis and concluded there could have been a hazard or there that there was a hazard to the deployment of 5G. So when all of this, as we got closer to the deadline, telecoms were going to be turning on 5G services, the aviation industry really turned up the volume and said, this has got to be dealt with. And that's what led to all of the discussions and the potential for disruption that we were seeing over the last couple of weeks. We didn't have to have that. I think this is is one of those problems that was created at the governmental level. You know, you have technical experts in the FCC. You have technical experts in the FAA. It was the FCC's position that this wasn't a problem and that the FAA was overreacting. And you know, I I have no reason to believe that their technical experts, uh, you know, had not reached an unreasonable conclusion. But what that overlooks is that the FAA by statute has its own responsibility to make the determination of no hazard. And uh, it will always, as a safety agency, adopt a conservative view of what constitutes a hazard. And I think that The debate that was taking place shouldn't have been a discussion about who's right and who's wrong, but more a better understanding of their relative positions and how they think about degrees of risk. That didn't happen. Instead, what things devolved to was a bit of a debate about who's right and who's wrong. The telecom companies were Absolutely correct. That uh, 5G has been deployed in over 40 countries with no significant problems to aviation. When they made that statement, though, what was left off the end of it was the end of the sentence, which essentially says, after extensive consultation between telecom and aviation regulators. That was what hadn't taken place here. That's what is now belatedly taking place. And what I think it really speaks to is a lack of leadership at the federal level to get these issues dealt with in advance before they broke out in this uh, very confusing and, um,
1: and uh, very disruptive manner that we've seen over the last few weeks. Thanks, Michael. Let's talk about drones for a few minutes. I keep waiting for my next Amazon package to be dropped off at my front door by a drone, but I still see a truck pull up and somebody walk up and do it. What do you think is holding back the commercialization of drones from a policy standpoint? There's obviously lots of issues to work through, but how is the FAA related to this?
3: Well, the FAA has to make a determination that the aircraft that are providing these services are safe, that there's there's a three-legged regulatory stool that has evolved in this country regarding any service for hire. And what it relies on is a certified aircraft, a certified operation, the company, and a certified operator, the pilot. And a lot of work was done while I was at the FAA, where we were focusing on the pilot, and we were focusing on the operation. We, at that time, were focused on very small drones, and so we deliberately said we were not going to focus on the certification of the aircraft itself. Well, progress is being made in all three of those areas. Uh, There are Many projects that are underway within the FAA to certify the aircraft for delivery of packages. There have been a couple of operating certificates that have been issued to UPS and to Wing to provide limited operations. Companies like Zipline that are providing critical medical supplies. But it's right now still very much in the, if you will, kind of pilot stage. There is also an interesting policy question, which is the role of state and local governments. And this is one that I think really needs a level of focus as well as you know the more technical issues that are taking place at the federal level. And what the state and local issue is, is what specifically are the authorities and responsibilities that a city or a state might have over these lower altitude um, aviation operations. You know, right now as a country, aviation is regulated exclusively at the federal level. But I remember a conversation that I had with the mayor of a large city, who made the comment in a in a public setting that that if he had a constituent that was receiving Amazon packages at all hours of the day or night and perhaps running a home-based business, and that his neighbors were annoyed by the mm. traffic overhead and the noise and any of a number of other factors. His point was, my constituents not going to call the FAA. They're going to call the mayor. And what are the authorities and responsibilities that I have to regulate this? And that, and that is a good question. And arguably, it's a gray area. You know, the, the FAA has the exclusive responsibility to regulate our national airspace, and that is well-documented and well-understood. A city has exclusive authority for land use, and a property owner has the exclusive right to the quiet enjoyment of the air rights over their property to some defined level. And so on its face, you can see that there's a conflict. And for the history of aviation up until now, the way that has been defined is essentially contractually. The FAA will recognize a city's ability to locate its airport, wherever it chooses to do so in exchange for the city recognizing the FAA's authority to regulate that airport and to ensure that it meets a certain standard for operation and that it operates as a public use facility. There are also federal grants in the picture as well that provide the framework for that to actually be negotiated and enforced. When you have a world where your driveway can essentially become an airport, that construct doesn't work. And so what you need to have is some understanding and development of, the, um, of what are the authorities that exist at all levels of government. Now, the FAA has tried to deal with this. Through a series of pilot programs and uh, waivers that have been issued, all with the thought that it's developing information that will inform future regulatory activities. The problem is, I think, that they've kind of gotten stuck in doing these pilots or doing a lot of things by waiver. And what that sets up is what I think is a false sense of progress. They're able to point to, hey, there are activities that are taking place. I mentioned the the authorities granted to a few companies to provide some limited operations. But in the absence of having a clear regulatory framework of how this can actually work on a large scale, it really is holding back the industry. And so at its core, I think what you need is there's always a whole lot of discussion of we'll just get the regulator out of the way and all this stuff would hap- will happen. This is actually an industry that is calling out for a regulatory structure. So they have certainty uh, for their business, for their investors of how this thing is actually going to operate And in the absence of that, I think that's probably the single biggest impediment right now. But what's behind that is all the questions we've been talking about, about certification of the aircraft, about certification of the operation, the role of state and local government authorities. It's a complex problem, but what everyone needs to be focusing on is what is the structure we're putting in place And how do we provide the certainty that we need for the companies to be able to provide the services that they very much want to provide
2: and that the public wants to have? So, Michael, as we wrap up, you've taken us to school on a bunch of issues related to technology and complicated aircraft and air traffic control decisions and issues. Let's talk about jerks on airplanes. Why can't (laughs) the FAA and DOT do more to get the disruptive passenger issue under control?
3: Well, the FAA's authorities are civil authorities, not criminal authorities, and it does depend on the rest of the government, the Justice Department, to really focus on the uh, more criminal aspects of this. I'm one of those people that is a big believer in being very public, taking aggressive enforcement on these, and being very public about uh, who you're enforcing against what they have done, and why it is unacceptable. It is something that um, I think has, has really just exploded across the aviation system. And there have been a lot of experts that have talked about theories about why that's the case. But I think that at its core, the public needs to understand is this is not acceptable. And what that really calls for is incredibly strong enforcement, not only of the civil authorities that the FAA has, but also what it represents in terms of um, violation of, of a whole host of safety-critical, um, safety-critical uh, laws and regulations that are out there. And there should be criminal prosecutions as well. And I think we need to see more of that.
1: Well, Michael, thank you very much. You have taught us so much. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot and we really appreciate the time you've taken to help us all out here with Airlines Confidential.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Michael, it's great to
2: talk to you. Thanks again.
1: We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential.
0: The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com.
2: Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Thanks to Michael Huerta for joining us, and thanks to you, Ben, for reaching out to him. Now we'll take some of your listener questions. Remember, you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts to send us a question. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, And you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential Podcast. Ben, our first question is from Kevin from Madrid, Spain. I had a question about how airlines plan revenue around business travel. I've always heard about the importance of, quote, corporate contracts. Everywhere I've worked, including a couple of companies that are very large and you've definitely heard of, have had policies booking based on low market fares versus favored airlines or contracts. I'm also relatively young and only been traveling for about 10 years for work purposes, so maybe it's different now than how it used to be, but how exactly does a corporate contract work and how much impact does that have to the bottom line, particularly for legacy airlines?
1: Thanks a bunch, and I really enjoy the podcast. Well, thank you, Kevin. That's a great question. So let's talk about this. Corporate contracts can be of two types for a sales organization in mostly legacy airlines. They may have a contract with a distributor, a travel agent, or with an online distributor like Expedia or something, which defines the terms of what fares they get, how the airline will pay them when they sell them and such. I think what you're specifically referring to is a corporate contract with an actual company. So let me give you an example from Chris and I's background. When Chris and I were at U.S. Airways and U.S. Airways operated the East Coast Shuttle, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, traveler on that shuttle was Verizon. Verizon is big now, but was big even then. And a lot of their travel was in and among Boston, New York, and Washington, So the shuttle with which U.S. Airways and Delta competed, Verizon was this huge volume of business. So Delta and U.S. Airways would always try to compete to win the Verizon contract. And what that was, no different than any other corporate contract, was essentially an agreement that I'll give you these prices and I'll give you these features of my product in exchange for you giving me some kind of share of your business. So you choose my airline when you have the choice of me or my competitor. And what you'll get from me is a better price and maybe some better features. Like in maybe the airline would make the top executives at this company all put them in an upper echelon of the frequent fire program just for joining the contract, for example. Or maybe they'd give them a certain number of people in the company access to the lounge network or things like that. When I say features, that's what I mean. But the core of the corporate contract is a quid pro quo. I'll give you these prices. You give me this share of your business. And where those corporate contracts tend to work best is in markets that are highly competitive. As you can imagine, you're in Europe. So I'll say British Airways, probably doesn't give as many discounts out of London as they might out of Germany, for example. Because since they control most of the capacity out of London, they don't need to discount that product quite as much for the business traveler. But out of Germany, they're competing with Lufthansa and their airlines, Air France and their airlines for connecting traffic. So they may feel they have to be very aggressive and any share that they win from there, they might credit as being incremental to their business. Meaning if we don't win this, these customers wouldn't naturally fly on us. So that's what the corporate contract world is all about. Airlines that are good at this, set up these contracts, understand the economics of them, understand what they're getting versus what they're giving. And then they manage these contracts very closely, meaning they watch to be sure that the companies are following through with their side, just as the company undoubtedly is making sure they get the prices that the airline offered and where these things tend to go sour for airlines. Kevin, is that maybe they set a deal with a company and then the company doesn't quite meet their share targets, but the airline still gives them all the prices. So in that case, the airline might give the real low fares that the contract offers, but doesn't get the full compliance from the client. And when the airline is nervous about asking the corporation about that, because they say, well, we can't be too hard on them because then they might leave the whole contract, that's when these contracts tend to become dilutive potentially for the airlines. It's a big piece of business for legacy airlines. The world hasn't changed that much in the last 10 years, except for the fact that airlines that really are big in certain cities have gotten better about trying to protect the revenue that is likely going to come to them with or without a contract. But in competitive spaces, this is still very big business. And if you work in a sales organization at a big airline, especially a big legacy airline, this is a lot of what you do.
2: Right. And then to underscore the other point that you You touched on, Ben, for Kevin and for others. If you're using an online booking tool like at Carnival, we use Get There by Sabre or Agencia or American Express, or there's lots of others out there. Your corporate rates are often embedded in those tools. So you're told to book the lowest fare, but then it also reflects the airlines that your company has a contract with with negotiated rates. So... uh, they're appearing in, in multiple ways. It's not like you're just booking, always booking direct with an airline. But how you book, um, whether through your travel agent or corporate travel office, is often tied to these negotiated rates.
1: That's a great point that I wasn't as clear on. Thanks, Chris. That, that's right. The fares you're seeing may are probably some of those contracted rates.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, at Carnival, we're one of the largest uh, buyers of airline tickets um, because we're moving tens of thousands of, of crew members around the world to join ships and return home after vacation. And a lot of this is long-haul international travel. So we have multiple agreements with the major U.S. carriers especially, but even some international carriers because of the nature of our business and how much we buy. We can meet those minimums because of the volume of, of air travel we buy.
1: Well, and then, Chris, Nick from Fort Worth had some constructive comments about our conversation with Mike Lenz last week. I've been an avid listener since episode one. I look forward each week to geeking out and learning more and more about the dynamic industry we all work in. I really enjoyed the interview with Mike Lenz, but I must say that I was disappointed that you let him go without asking a few crucial FedEx questions about FedEx's pursuit of single piloted aircraft and automated cockpits, as well as their recent request with the FAA to put laser detection equipment on some of their aircraft. Chris, did we miss an opportunity here?
2: Nick, that's on us. It wasn't purposeful. Ben and I were collaborating on the discussion and topics to cover. And frankly, we just missed these two. I know we've talked about the single pilot uh, cockpit issue previously on some of these broadcasts and we probably should have asked him about it. It just slipped our mind. Our apologies. Hopefully we'll have other guests that can address it moving forward, but glad you listened. Glad you're a faithful listener and glad you're enjoying our guests. And then, Ben, one more quick question from Eric in Minnesota. Ben, you were quoted early in the pandemic saying you think we'll see airlines in the US merge because of the pandemic. We haven't seen it yet. I'm curious to know what your opinions and thoughts are about this now. Thanks for the podcast, guys.
1: Well, thanks, Eric. You know, I did say that. And in the context that I said it, I said every time there's been a major disruption in airlines, coming out of that, you usually see some sort of merger or merger and acquisition activity or M&A activity. I still say that's true, Eric. <laughs> and over since the pandemic started, airlines have been so focused on first, making sure they have enough liquidity. Secondly, going through the mask mandates and figuring out what's happening there. Now, as we're coming into... You know, what will hopefully be a very busy 2022 getting capacity back, hiring lots of people for what is expected to be a lot of demand. I think the airlines are just starting to be able to breathe a little bit easier. And that's even harder to say with Omicron out there, but they are because of higher liquidity and Demand is coming back and business travel, while not at 2019 levels, continues to grow at a very slow rate, close back to the 2019 levels. So I think in 2022 is when these ideas may start to germinate again and airlines might say, well, who's a natural synergistic network with ours? Or who could we potentially merge with to change our buying opportunities or something like that? And I continue to think that the most likely place for mergers in our business are going to be in the regional space. We still have a few large independent regionals that fly for all the big airlines. And it seems to me that whether it's pilot recruitment and training, whether it's negotiating with the big airlines um, or things like that, that by merging one or two of those airlines, you might end up with a company that's a little more efficient and has a little more leverage to help manage their space. Of the jet flying airlines, it seems to me that it's going to be tough for American United or Delta to buy anyone just because of their size. That doesn't mean that they couldn't. But those three carriers now, or the top four carriers in the U.S., are down to about 60% of all the traffic in the U.S., when just a few years ago they were at over 80%. So now you have close to 40% of the capacity in the business that's not one of the big four. And it seems to me that in that 40% is where you might find some opportunity for m and or mergers and acquisition opportunity. So to get back to your key question, I still think it's possible. I'm not going to say I think it's likely. But as we're coming out of this pandemic and every airline is thinking about what does my post-pandemic network look like and what does my post-pandemic competitiveness look like? they're probably thinking about, are there any mergers that we should consider that might make sense for us? And going back to the Airbus cutter thing, this could be thought of both offensively and defensively. What do I want to do to be aggressive to make sure I grow? And what do I want to make sure my competitor doesn't do so I'll do it first? To use
2: the healthcare analogy, Ben, Airline executives have been working in the ER for the last two years, and all elective surgeries have been suspended. So, um, so I, you know, I think, like you pointed out, people are trying to get to that point of much more strategic kinds of discussions and evaluations. But uh, right now, the focus is just on catching your breath and keeping the operation going.
1: That's a great analogy, Chris. I think that's exactly right. Mergers yeah. are absolutely an elective surgery. <laughs> And that's right in a lot of ways, actually. So, Well, Fine Our
2: Wine is next, but not before we pause to thank the specialty finance and baking team at Seabury Capital Group. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, and an unmatched depth of relationships and decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and
1: scale at seaburycapital.com. Chris, this week's Finer Wine is from Linda in Pennsylvania. I like the option to fly from Philadelphia on American, but parking at the airport is ridiculous. Couldn't the airline strike a deal to give their loyal customers some kind of discount for airport parking? I realize the airline doesn't run the airport, but American is so big there, it seems they might want to help those who could easily drive to Newark and fly United. Chris finer wine.
2: Linda, I'm going to have to ding you for it being a wine, but I think you raised some really interesting points. I haven't parked at Newark Airport in a couple decades, but I find it hard to believe that parking at Newark is less expensive than Philly, but maybe it is. Or maybe there's better options. But, you know, getting to the airport has historically not been part of an airline's view about the customer service experience. But as they look at their loyalty programs and the like, I mean, why not be able to use your freaking flyer miles to pay for parking? They are talking about you know, turning that into more currency kinds of opportunities. So there are other ways to spend your miles than a, than a flight, and sometimes they're more valuable than the flight itself. So I think you raise an interesting point with regard to how airlines could be thinking more strategically about the broader travel experience and how you get to the airport being one of them and how they can facilitate that better.
1: That's a good response, Chris. I do think it's a a whine because the airport parking prices are posted. You know what they are. You know what I do, Chris, is probably not different than what a lot of people do. My airport that I fly from mostly is Reagan National, and I know what it costs to park there. And I also know what it costs to Uber there. (laughs) And so... I usually make my decision if, if if my total cost of getting to and from the airport is cheaper by parking, I drive. If it's cheaper with Uber, I Uber. And, and I know that that mindset has really hurt airports because it's taken a lot of parking revenue out of their coffers as fewer and fewer people are parking, especially parking for longer term at airports, which is probably why in the short term they raise their price. And gets back to your point that there's got to be a better solution. Well, Chris, with that, I'm going to give my shout out for the week. And my shout out goes to the UK for what they did in reducing the challenges to fly to and operate in and around the UK due to COVID. And my shout out is not because of what they believe and what they said about the pandemic itself because they were very pragmatic and said you still should wear a mask around in big crowds and you still should be very careful, but you don't need to be tested to come here anymore and you don't have to wear a mask to go into places unless that place wants to make that happen. The reason I want to give them a shout out is I thought their guidance was really clear. It made perfect sense What they said, why they said it. And if you're a traveler to the UK, you can read that and know exactly what you have to do. And Chris, I'm convinced that one of the big things holding back international travel is just the uncertainty about what do I have to do and what might happen to me. And I think the UK, with their recent announcement, has put out a really good model of what other countries can do around clarity of their process.
2: Yep. Good shout out. I totally echo your uh, sentiment on that. Uh, I'm going to give my shout out to a website this week. Um, Maybe some of our listeners are familiar with it. I just stumbled upon it last week and having worked in and around the airline business for 30 plus years. I don't know why I didn't see it before, but it's thisdayinaviation.com. And it gives you a historical look back 365 days of the year on something that happened in the aviation sector that day, going back uh, sometimes uh, well over 100 years, obviously, with the Wright brothers and early flight. But Av Geeks will love it. Uh, you can, I think, subscribe to a daily feed with regard to what happened that day. But uh, if you want to wander on this day in aviation.com, take a look at it, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy some of the historical
1: lookbacks. Great shout out, Chris. I was unaware of that site, but I'm going to sign up right away. I think that's terrific. Well, thank you all for another week at Airlines Confidential. We'll see you next week.
2: Thanks for listening. Have a good week, everyone. This podcast
0: is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.